Stuart Eisenstadt has had a long, distinguished, and really quite extraordinary career. Among the many positions he's held, President Jimmy Carter's chief White House domestic policy advisor, President Bill Clinton's ambassador to the European Union, and he was an undersecretary in both the Departments of Commerce and State. He's today a leading international lawyer with Covington and Burling here in Washington. He's now written President Carter, the White House years, a kind of memoir on just four years, 1977 to 1981. But they were very eventful years. He joins me today to discuss what Carter did and did not achieve in foreign policy and national security. Also joining us for this conversation, Kenneth Stein, professor of contemporary Middle Eastern history, political science, and Israeli studies, and founding director of the Emory Institute for the Study of Modern Israel. Also with us, Jonathan Shanzer, FDD's vice president for research. We're pleased you're joining us as well here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Well, again, thanks for being with us, uh, Ambassador Eisenstadt and John and, and Professor Stein. Let me – I got to say I'm, I'm a longtime admirer of yours, uh, Ambassador Eisenstadt. Um, I met you many years ago and I followed your career. President Carter, I guess you'd say I'm among those for whom you probably wrote this book. And at about a, almost a thousand pages, it, it's, it's quite a tome. Um, you write here that you're very aware that the – here I'm going to quote you. The conventional wisdom is that Jimmy Carter was a weak and hapless president, your words. But you want to make the case that his was, quote, far from a failed presidency, that while he was, quote, not a great president, unquote, nevertheless, now is the time to redeem his presidency. So let me start. What what would be the key conclusion about Jimmy Carter that you want to revise, the one achievement for which – you think he's not received the credit he deserves, the, the one you want most people to, to understand. Where, where would you begin? Well, fact, Cliff, it is most of the achievements are unrecognized. Now, I write an honest book. It's gotten great reviews in the New York Times and Post and others because it's candid about the mistakes we made, Iran, inflation, inexperience by himself and his Georgia mafia, interparty warfare. But they have obscured a whole host of domestic and foreign policy accomplishments which have lasting impact. So, for example, the energy security we enjoy today, the lack of dependence on OPEC oil, rests highly on the foundation of three energy bills that we passed during those four years. We didn't stop there. We deregulated telecommunications and inaugurated the whole uh, cable era and even ended the prohibition era restrictions on local craft beers. Uh, he was also as a southern – That deserves more credit than it's well, still. Well, for people who drink that. local craft beer. <laughs> uh, but our really Achilles heel was Iran and yep. we'll discuss this more. And we do want to – yeah, I do want to main, 
talk, talk mostly about foreign policy, national security, but I'm glad to give you the chance to talk about the breadth of it because this is a very comprehensive book. Ken Stein, let me bring you in here. Uh, in addition to the introduction I made to you, people should know if they don't that you were close to Carter, that you helped build the Carter Center at Emory University in Atlanta where you live. And of course, Ambassador Eisenstadt is from Georgia. One can tell from his accent. Jimmy Carter is from Plains, Georgia. And you were the first permanent executive director. If memory serves, you were affiliated with the Carter Center for more than 20 years. We'll talk a little later about why you resigned from that position. Stu has written a, <laughs> um, what I would call a doorstopper. Um, it, it's a pretty hefty tome. Um, and he goes into a lot of detail and a lot of things that I didn't know about, particularly in the domestic world. Um, unlike Stu, I, I only met Carter after he left the White House, and I didn't have um, bunches of legal pads to, of his notes. I had a lot of tape recordings of a lot of meetings that I had with Carter and had with a lot of people who influenced him um, over the years in making foreign policy. So my knowledge of, of the Middle East only comes from um, after the fact and from doing a lot of research. Stu's correct that um, Carter did a lot of good things uh, domestically. Uh, the key question is why we, why was he unable to translate domestic successes into an electoral victory in 1980? He didn't understand that there were real domestic impacts on foreign policy. There's one accomplishment uh, before we get to the Middle East, which which is next on my list, but, but that you didn't mention um, at any length, but, I, but I, I do think it's an accomplishment. His introduction of human rights into foreign policy in a way we hadn't really seen before it. We were competing for the hearts and minds of the third world, and his view was that foreign policy should reflect the best of our values, democracy, promotion of human rights, tolerance, and, and the like. Also, one thing that I disclosed for the first time, and we made huge mistakes on Iran. I'm very candid about them. We'll discuss them. But one bright spot, which is not known until the publication of this book, we saved 50,000 Iranian Jews as well as Christians and Baha'is, some of whom were already studying in the United States and would have been expelled under our executive order after the hostages were taken, but also, particularly my recollection, because as you know, I've, I've done in the Clinton administration $8 billion of recoveries for Holocaust survivors. So I remembered what happened when Jews tried to get out of Europe and the doors were shut in the United States. So we were able to get Soviet uh, Iranian Jews out at that at the early stages. They were coming to our consulates and being turned back, just like happened during World War II. We changed the visa laws to, to give them liberal interpretations of asylum applications. And I've twice been given awards in Los Angeles. The largest contingent of Iranian Jews lives there. So we got 50,000 out and away from Khomeini's radical hands. Let's come back to Iran because I do want to make sure we discuss it. Let's discuss the Middle East because there's an area. Let me. Uh, I'm a, a recovering journalist, I would say, so I uh, I have a license to oversimplify um, the, the kind of general narrative on, on on what happened between Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Menachem Begin uh, is that thanks largely to Carter, uh, they were able to make peace a peace that may be cold, but last to this day between Egypt and, and Israel. Um, I would, uh, let me question how much Jimmy Carter deserves credit for that. I'm convinced to this day, and I think I make the case, that the reason 
that Sadat made his historic trip to Jerusalem was in significant part because he realized if he got caught up in an all-Arab-Israel conference to solve every problem in the Middle East, he would never get the Sinai back. Assad would veto it and other radicals would. Now, at Camp David, there's no question that he's the hero. Begin himself said this shouldn't be called the Camp David Accords. It should be called the Jimmy Carter Accords. Why? Because after the Sadat visit, Cliff, there were months of inconclusive negotiations between the Israelis and the Egyptians. Nothing was happening. There was a real impasse. Carter took a huge risk over the advice of most of his advisors to invite them to the presidential retreat at Camp David. And over 13 agonizing days and nights, Carter drafted 20 separate agreements. He had to negotiate separately with Prime Minister Begin from Israel and Sadat of Egypt and his staffs because they were like two scorpions in the bottle. They could not be in the same room together. There was so much distrust. The last Sunday, the 13th day, we were close but not quite there. Begin says to him, Mr. President, I cannot and will not make any more concessions. You've given me 20 drafts. I can't make any more. I'm going home. I've got an El Al plane waiting for me. Get me out of here. He called it a glorified concentration camp, Camp David. And the president, realizing that this would blow up Sadat's historic mission, could encourage the radicals in the region and destroy his own presidency, came up with a very personal touch based on his pouring over intelligence records about Sadat and Begin and really trying to understand both of them. He knew that Begin had a great love for his eight grandchildren, so he got photographs of himself, Sadat, and Begin at Camp David, personally inscribed each one to one of Begin's grandchildren, walked them over to Begin's cabin at Camp David and handed it to him, and then saw Begin, lips quiver, eyes tear. He put his bags down and he said, Mr. President, I'll make one last try. We've had that inaugurated piece, and of course, it took another six months and another trip to the region to convert these accords, which were not legally binding, into a binding treaty. That was also risky and very detrimental. So six months go by, and we can't convert the Camp David Accords into a binding treaty for a variety of reasons. Carter decides over everyone's objection, Brzezinski, Vance, myself, Jordan, to go to the region and try to make the last deal. He can't get it done. The airspace is cleared. He's, Air Force One is about to leave. He's packing at the King David Hotel, the presidential suite. Begin calls him up early in the morning and says, I'd like to come over and see you one more time. And he comes to the King David Hotel. Begin says, now, you know, young men, this is a very famous hotel, the King David Hotel. Oh, yes, we know, but not for the reasons you think. We said, why? He said, because when I was the head of the Air Gun, I blew this hotel up when the British were in it. But don't worry, I'm not going to do it with the president here. Ken Stein, let me question what happened between Sadat and Begin and Jimmy Carter uh, and, that, and, and how we should understand that very important episode in history. Stu has given us a vintage American-centric interpretation of what happened at Camp David. Um, and that means reliance upon Carter's keeping faith, Carter's White House diary, interviews with Carter, Vance's memoirs, Brzezinski's memoirs. It doesn't tell us how the Israelis looked at what was going on. And I think like most Americans and most people who tell the history of Camp David, 
we completely underestimate the absolute centrality and essentiality of Anwar Sadat to an agreement. If there had not been Anwar Sadat, Jimmy Carter could not have been successful. It's that simple. And because Sadat put his faith in Carter, Carter was able to be Egypt's ambassador. But that was Sadat's goal. Sadat's goal was to turn to the Americans. The last point, and it's absolutely critical because the documents have just been released by the Israel State Archives in Hebrew, that on September 6th, Begin already knew from Sadat that they could leave Camp David and there would be a treaty or there would be an agreement over Sinai. And Carter told that to Begin and Dayan on September 10th. Yes, Carter had a weave between Begin and Sadat and the various delegations, but I think we overstate the kinds of negotiations that Carter went through. Yes, there were 22 drafts. Absolutely, there were 22 drafts. I get it. But we do not emphasize enough that this agreement between Israel and Egypt was really the, 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 the au pair and the, and, and the omer of this agreement was, was Sadat. I'm, I'm really shocked, I'm using that word advisedly, that Ken Stan, a professor, would make these kind of comments. Number one, I did not interview only the American delegation. I interviewed every single living Egyptian, every single living Israeli on the delegation to get their views. And it was very clear in the way I wrote it that Carter understood that Begin was much more inflexible than his aides. And so in the end, he had to go to Diane, to Weitzman, and to Aharon Barak, the legal advisor. On the other hand, he understood that Sadat was not a detailed man and was way ahead of his delegation. Indeed, his foreign minister resigned in the middle of Camp David. I interviewed every single person. So it's hardly just a America-centric view. I guess the, the thing about Sadat that I think it's important that people understand is he fought a war against Israel in 1973, the Yom Kippur War. He launched it on the holiest day of the year. That was strategic of him. He almost won it. The Israelis almost lost it. Within a few years, he understood that uh, he could not fight another war and win if he fought another war against Israel. Uh, there'd be troops in downtown Cairo and that he could never get back the, the land he had lost, the Sinai, in which the Israelis were already drilling oil and putting settlements unless he made peace. He understood he had been, he understood he, this is an important point, I think. He understood, Sadat did, that he had been defeated and couldn't win. And only at that point was he willing to make peace. It's wonder, I think he's a great man. It's wonderful to say he wanted peace, but, but that wasn't quite it. He knew he couldn't win. He knew that worse defeats lay ahead if he didn't make peace. So peace was the least bad alternative. And he did it very well when, once he did it. I think that has lessons for us now in terms of Israel and its enemies, which is why I think it's important to understand this chapter of history very clearly. You feel free to disagree with me or to agree with me. You know more about it than I do. Look, I, I would agree, but maybe with a caveat or two. I mean, I did get a sense that, that Sadat uh, saw the, the war in 1973 as an opportunity to make his point uh, that uh, Egypt was still relevant, could still challenge Israel, and that gave him the cover to be able to come mm -hmm. to Jerusalem as he did. But uh, uh, Mr. Ambassador, I, I want to say I, I didn't get a chance to read all 900 pages. I only got the book yesterday. So you 
you'll have to uh, forgive me. You I did read the Middle East. I read the Middle East section, so uh, I've done my homework. Um, what, what I what I think I was struck by was uh, number one that this really was a Sadat initiative. In fact, uh, President Carter was miffed. Uh, exactly. By the fact that that's that Sadat went uh, to Jerusalem and he was surprised and he was a bit angry. And perhaps what was even more striking to me as I as I read your account was that uh, that Carter was fixated on the question of the Palestinians, even as he had this victory, this am- amazing diplomatic victory where he would be able to preside over Egypt, Israel, peace. And yet he would not allow himself to enjoy that because he was so focused on an issue that – and I would love to get your take on this. To me, it's still inexplicable what captured his imagination okay. about the Palestinians to the point that he was willing to overlook this I- immense diplomatic achievement. So he spends months trying to reconstruct this comprehensive peace through Geneva. The Israelis wanted nothing to do with it. They were afraid they were going to get ganged up on by 20 Arab countries and the Soviet Union, which was going to be a co-sponsor. So when it falls apart, and it falls apart because it was announced without any prior consultation by Carter with Israel or with Egypt, and then Sadat decides to go to Jerusalem, I'm passing Carter just outside the Oval Office, and I'm incredibly excited about the fact that you know, this historic trip by Sadat is being taken. He said, I'm considering opposing it because if Sadat goes, it's just going to be a bilateral agreement. I said, Mr. President, you can't do that. This is an incredibly historic moment, Israel's most powerful neighbor. So that goes right into Mm -hmm. Jonathan's point about the Palestinians. And here I'm going to be very candid, and I'm very candid in the book. I interviewed Carter among the 350 interviews five times. And he told me very tellingly, now I'm quoting him, this is not my view, please, that he saw the Palestinians from a human rights perspective. And he said in the interview that to me, Carter, they were the blacks of the Middle East. And he says, the Israeli military treats them worse than the white police treated blacks when I was growing up. So for him, the Palestinians were sort of the flip side of civil rights at home. Democrats tend to be more human rights, civil rights focused and see it in that way. But part of it is that the base of the Democratic Party is increasingly a non-white base. And they, like Carter, identify with the Palestinians as the discriminated, the weaker party. So for him, it was a civil rights issue as he extrapolated it from his time growing up in the rural South when Blacks were discriminated against, so that's the reason, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of struck as, again reading your own account. Um, you know, President Carter was the one who coined the term, uh, or was the first president to to use the term uh, "legitimate rights of the Palestinians." Right. Uh, he was the first person to introduce the notion of a settlement freeze. One, one, one could potentially argue that 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 the Jimmy Carter laid the tracks for where we are within the Democratic Party right now, that the grievances that the Democratic Party has with Israel, these were not grievances before Jimmy Carter's presidency. How, how would you respond to that? Well, actually, I would respond in a very different way. Now, I, I have uh, very strong disagreements, as did Ken, 
uh, over the apartheid book, which was written 30 years after he left. But we would have, I think, a better situation in the Middle East if, number one, the full autonomy, which Begin promised in the Camp David Accords, in the treaty for the Palestinians, had been followed. He did agree to a settlement freeze. There were 15,000 settlers when Carter left office in the West Bank. There are 350,000 now. So I'll leave it to you to decide whether that's a positive or a negative. But it certainly complicates a two-state solution. Two points to clarify. When you talk about autonomy that was promised, um, I think we need to define that term because I I, I would argue that – after Ariel Sharon decided to withdraw entirely from Gaza, that's more than autonomy. We see the results. The results are that Gaza was taken over by Hamas and it has been used ever since as a base for terrorism, missiles, and other strikes against Israel. In fact, I think one can say that every inch of territory that Israel has ever withdrawn from is now occupied by, by terrorists, whether it's the Sinai or southern Lebanon or Gaza. Uh, autonomy, I would agree with you, for Palestinians is correct. But autonomy doesn't mean what some people may think it means, which is the Israelis need to simply get out of the West Bank and let whatever happens happen. Because if what happens should the Israelis withdraw from the West Bank, and I've been to the West Bank many times, it's, it is not the worst place in the, in the Middle East. It's not Syria. It's not Yemen. It's not terribly. It's, it's actually rather prosperous. You could be in Ramallah and think you were in Amman. If the Israelis were to simply leave and it were taken over by Hamas, everything that's been achieved there would be gone. The full autonomy promised at Camp David in the treaty was not defined specifically because it was to be subject of a five-year negotiation. That did not mean, it did not mean, nor did Carter mean it to mean, that the Israelis had to withdraw from the West Bank. That's not what autonomy was. And third, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that changed public opinion in Israel, I go there two or three times a year, was the fact that Sharon withdrew from Gaza. All 7,000 settlers were taken out. He left the infrastructure, the greenhouses, and instead of getting roses, he got rock. Israel got rockets because Hamas took over. So there's no question that, that even, in my mind, if there's a Palestinian state, there still has to be some kind of Israeli presence. But to go back again, full autonomy did not mean, and no one intended it to mean, that the Israelis and the Israeli military had to withdraw from the West Bank. I think it's very important that we, that, we, that that be clarified. There's one more area on this subject I want to talk about before we move on to Iran, which I definitely want to get in. And I'm going to bring Ken in on it, but but, but you'll have some comments too, both of you. And that is this, that you've interviewed uh, President Carter five times for this book, post-presidency. I would argue that he has moved considerably over time to the left and from a position where I think, as you describe well in your book, he was very supportive of Israel to one where he is very antagonistic to Israel um, at this point. That uh, however he may talk about Israel now, is probably not the way he talked about Israel back when he was president. I'm not sure what happened to him, but can you know? Because again, you worked for him, you watched him, you and eventually you resigned. I guess I, I I can say in some disgust over how he, over how his opinions had evolved. Ken, is that a, a fair way to put it? Um, I I watched his opinions evolve from the 80s. I didn't know how 
deep the animus was in the American Jewish community for him in the latter, latter years of his presidency. Um, I do know he found himself at odds with the Jewish community. And one of the key questions I have for Stu, how come Carter didn't fully grasp the mistrust that the Jewish community had for him? And how come Hamilton Jordan and you and others took so long to understand that foreign policy has a direct impact on domestic politics? And I never understood it in the post-presidency. So I'm asking a question for a guy who worked for him well, during I, the presidency. I appreciate what that. What was this incredible disconnect? First of all, it wasn't so long. I, I quote a remarkable memo that Ham Jordan sent early in the administration when we were already in June of 77. Yes, already in the first six months saying we're losing Jewish support. They're a huge important base for us and we're losing Jewish support. So I've asked this question of myself a million times and I'm going to give you a quick answer, but let's look at this. We won 70% of the Jewish vote in 1976 against, against Ford. Why was it that a president who did the following ended up with the lowest percentage of Jewish support of any Democratic candidate or president, even lower than George McGovern, for goodness sakes, 40% in 1980 against Reagan, who brought the first peace between Israel and its Arab neighbor, who broke the back of the anti-boycott uh, movement with the anti-boycott law, who championed Soviet jury, who saved Iranian jury, who was the father of the Holocaust Museum. Why? So I think it is because, and Ken has touched on, on, on this as well, I think that it wasn't just that as a Southern Baptist, he wasn't comfortable with Jews. He won 70% of the Jewish vote in Illinois primary in March. I think it's because in order to achieve peace, Cliff and Ken and Jonathan, a lot of glass was broken, heavy pressure on Begin, the Saudi arms sale, uh, the pro-Palestinian statements like a Palestinian homeland. All of that hit an impact. And then the coup de grace was the following. UN Resolution 465, Carter got a pro – he made a promise at Camp David at the end to Begin. I will not support any UN resolution against Israel that says Jerusalem is occupied territory. UN Resolution 465, which we supported after Illinois and before New York, had six references to Jerusalem as quote-unquote occupied territory. Carter said that he had instructed that to be vetoed. It wasn't. Uh, but that capped this sort of underlying distrust that Carter was too pro-Palestinian uh, that even though he brought peace with Israel, that it came at the expense of pushing Israel very hard. And it did. And you did, I think, uh, paint a damning portrait of Carter's, and I, I put in quotes here, lack of political sensitivity, which you called breathtaking. I mean, that, that's, I think that's, that's pretty significant, uh, as a biographer and as someone who was close to, to Carter. And I would also note that you mentioned the anti-boycott provisions. That, that's something that I think is an enduring legacy, uh, of President Carter and actually could end up being a tool to fight the current iteration of the boycott movement today. 
for that, uh, uh, President Carter, I think, deserves full full credit. The, the, uh, maybe the last question that I would ask, just getting back to the issue of the Palestinians, because, of course, we've been focused here primarily on the uh, on the Egypt-Israel uh, uh, negotiations. You know, I, I note as you write about uh, all of this that you know, the president is very taken with the idea of Palestinian rights. Uh, but I also note that you're not yourself having conversations with Palestinians, nor are the others in the White House uh, that that you're talking to on a regular basis. Uh, at the time, the PLO is uh, recognized as a terrorist organization. There's very little in the way of interaction between the White House and the Palestinians. You know, I, I, I even see this today that there is a sense that the Palestinians are uh, prepared for statehood even without necessarily getting a sense of the institutions on the ground, how that could be translated to success. Did the president actually have a vision for what a state for the Palestinians or independence for the Palestinians, what that would look like? Or was this a notional issue? Because as again, as I read the book, there wasn't a lot of meat on the bone there. And I don't know who he was talking to. Okay, so first, if you want candor, you quoted a, a candid criticism I made. How about my candor in saying that I couldn't understand why he always would accept Assad's assurances. This is the current Bashar Assad's father, mm -hmm. who was just as bad, mm -hmm. uh, and and somehow instinctively understood that somehow they wanted peace when they clearly didn't. Second, we couldn't talk, Jonathan, to the Palestinians because the PLO was recognized in 1974 by the Arab League as the sole representative of the Palestinians, they wouldn't accept UN Resolution 242 in peace with Israel for land. And so Congress had barred any participation. Now, I go into the book again. Carter goes through backflips to try to get the PLO to adopt 242 so they can be part of this overall comprehensive thing, and they won't do it. We was, he used every means to try to get them to do it, and they refused. And that's the kind of refusal that we've seen from this day through, you know, Ehud Barak offering 95 percent of the West Bank and East Jerusalem as a capital and Old Mayor tonight, 2008, offering even more and it being refused. So the Palestinians simply weren't – we weren't able to engage with them at the time. And no, we did not have and Carter didn't have the notion of statehood. He talked about a notional homeland about autonomy, about more self-government. But there was no developed concept at that time of a full-blown Palestinian state. But And again, just a quick follow-up, but I mean, did, did he even have a sense of what uh, how successful they could be at autonomy? Did, did he have a sense of what a government would look like? Again, this seemed very conceptual to me without really seeing a whole lot of meat on the bone. There was some meat on the bones, but again, it was to be subject to future negotiations by Linowitz. But it was that for all non-defense issues, the Palestinians should be self-governing for education, for health care, uh, for the economy, for investment, uh, that they should have the uh, opportunity to make those decisions themselves, but not on national security issues. Your chapter, The Rise of the Ayatollah, is followed by the, the fall of the president, um, essentially uh, indicating there was no way after Iran's Islamic revolution for Carter uh, to prevail. I think that Iran would, would, would not be seen as a good time for President Carter, but I also think he's not primarily to blame. And, and here's the reason why. The intelligence on what was going on in Iran, on who Ayatollah Khomeini was, on what he believed, was 
really just awful and terrible. And let me add that the diplomacy was also not very good in this area. Um, that William Sullivan, and who was the ambassador um, in, in, in Tehran, and Andrew uh, Young, who was the, the ambassador at the UN, neither understood Khomeini. Both had a vision of him being a sort of Gandhi, a saint-like figure, somebody who was moderate, somebody who was inclusive. They were, they were dead wrong about how they saw it. So the advice that President Carter was getting on Iran seems to me to have been very far from what we now know to have been the reality. So let me give my response. I'd, I'd be very interested in Ken's uh, uh, view on this as well. So my view is this. Uh, Carter can't be fully blamed at all for the fact that there was an Islamic revolution in Iran any more than Eisenhower could be blamed for the Castro revolution in Cuba 90 miles away or Barack Obama for Mubarak's overthrow and so forth. However, it was, in my opinion, and I lay it out in the book in very candid and blunt ways, the single worst intelligence failure in American history. Here is a Shaw, who was our principal ally, who the CIA and MI6 in the UK reinstalled in the 21-year-old monarch in 1953 over an elected prime minister. He gets the most sophisticated American arms okay, for over 20 years. And yet, the CIA did not know and didn't inform Carter because they didn't know that his domestic support rested on quicksand. He had alienated wide swaths, not just the fundamentalists. They didn't know, Cliff, can you believe this, for our principal that for five years he was secretly getting cancer treatments. They didn't appreciate the impact of the inflammatory cassettes that Khomeini was sending in exile outside of Paris back to, to uh, Iran. It's an unacceptable, unforgivable response. And when the hostages were taken, both Brzezinski, the national security advisor, and I recommended immediate military action, not bombing Tehran, but cauterizing their oil imports by blockading Carg Island, where all their oil came by a blockade or by mining, like, like Kennedy did in Cuba. Instead, the president met with the hostage families. He said, my number one goal is to get your loved ones out safe and sound, which was a humanitarian gesture, but it gave Khomeini more bargaining authority, more bargaining power, and for 444 humiliating days, that process went on. Uh, and he then mistake, made a mistake in holding himself up in the White House and making this his sole focus. It just caused more press attention. The Nightline program of Ted Koppel started because of it. That was before Nightline. People don't remember that, yeah. but it was a, a daily advertisement against the Carter administration. And, and Cronkite himself, the dean of reporting, every night would include, conclude his CBS news broadcast saying day 103, day 407, you know, the hostage crisis. And then real straw that broke the camel's back after that was, of course, the failed rescue mission, yes. which did not occur because there were too few helicopters. Carter added two more to what the military wanted. Help had occurred because we had four military services involved in an extremely complex effort. They had not fully practiced together at all. There was no joint command. We created it later. And when the helicopter rotor blade hit the C-130 aircraft on the ground, and eight servicemen died in flames. It engulfed our administration as well. I totally agree with you there. We were not, we did not have the special forces that we have now. In fact, the special forces we have now were in response to the failure Correct. of that mission. The broad question is, um, was too much time spent on Camp David and the Egyptian-Israeli negotiations and not enough time 
focused on Iran that was falling apart in the last part of 78 and early part of 79. And it's a, a question that historians ask, but they really don't have an answer to. I know there was great disagreement between Gary Sick and Henry Precht, between the White House and the State Department. But those are questions which we will never answer. The bigger question for Stu, I think, and, and the book is Carter didn't know a lot about foreign policy when he started, and he relied a lot upon Brzezinski. And you make that point in the book, and you made the point in your interview with me. And Brzezinski didn't pay a lot of attention to the connection between foreign policy and domestic politics. It's very insightful, and I mentioned in a book, that in the midst of the Camp David negotiations, when things are starting to fall apart in Iran, that both Sadat and Carter phoned from Camp David to Shaw to try to shore him up. Uh, I think that we were caught, and this was, again, an intelligence failure, uh, without an appreciation of how quickly things were deteriorating, Ken, in, in Iran. And, and here's a point that Ken is certainly correct on. Zbig was tone deaf, and I love the guy. Uh, we were very close. He was tone deaf on domestic issues. For him, foreign policy should be free of domestic pressures. And Ham kept saying, and I kept saying, particularly on the Middle East, you cannot separate domestic and foreign policy. They have to be taken together. Here you are. You've represented a, an administration that suffered at the hands of the Iranians, uh, in fact, leading to, you know, let's just say, the unraveling of the Carter presidency, or at least in part. Uh, fast forward to where we are today, and we have a, a pretty significant debate about the right way to approach Iran. And it is effectively, obviously, there's new leaders, but it's effectively the same regime, the same ideology, the same kinds of problems and challenges that they pose uh, to uh, to regional security, international security, American security. Where do you come out on all of this? Obviously, you know, as a Democrat, you're probably uh, thinking that, uh, you know, from, from a partisan perspective that you side with uh, with an Obama type approach of trying to reach an agreement. But yet here you are representing an administration that couldn't negotiate with this regime, that couldn't get anything done through talking. So where do you come out on this debate? It's a very good question. So first of all, I want to be very candid. I'm haunted personally by the fact that the radical Islamic Republic of Iran is here today, that it's the principal supporter of terrorism, that it's an existential threat to Israel. And I'm haunted by the notion, was there something we could have done to prevent it? The only thing that could have been done, and here again there were mixed messages between Vance and Zbig. Zbig said, and here he was correct, you've got to tell the Shah he's got to put the demonstrations down forcibly, including killing the some of the demonstrators. The mm -hmm. Shah himself, and I interviewed Zahidi, who was his last uh, ambassador to the U.S. and one of his closest advisors, said he, Zahidi, said the same thing to the Shah. And the Shah said, as a monarch, I can't kill my own people. Now, mind you, with Savak, he killed a lot of them. But he, he didn't have that backbone. Had Carter pushed harder? Might he have? Yes. But it probably would only have suppressed the pressures that were already there. Now, on your specific question, my position is the following. I think, and I've headed the Iran Task Force, the Atlantic Council for six years, that the, the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement, was in U.S. interest and in Israel's interest. 
to try to basically freeze and reduce, at least for a period of time, the nuclear agreement. Having said that, we were the we suffered greatly. We had many agreements to to free the hostages, many agreements, and every time Khomeini would veto it. We see the same thing now. So when you deal with, you know, Zarif or Rouhani, you're not dealing with the real power. The real power is the Ayatollah. Uh, and they are the principal supporters of terrorism. Their position in Syria, and Ken is an expert on this, uh, is unacceptable. I mean, trying to establish permanent military bases. So I think, Jonathan, we should say the nuclear agreement is important. It should not it should have been kept. But we should do everything possible to enhance sanctions and, uh, against their other activities. Khomeini, in the midst of the hostage crisis, came up with the famous or infamous phrase, the, and it was to his surprise, the Americans can't do a damn thing. And that's something that has been said by his successor, Ayatollah Khomeini, over and over again, and still reflects the view of that, that regime. Um, this, there's more to discuss and debate in a book this large. It's full of interesting subjects. Um, and from now on, I think your book will be an essential element in all the debates and discussions uh, that we have on the Carter legacy and on all of these issues. Because most of the issues, uh, I would say, that, that Carter grappled with and that you grapple with remain unsettled. We're still fighting a lot of the same battles. And I, I've learned a lot, and I, I think, uh, I, I, and I hope our listeners feel that they've learned a lot as well. So thanks to you, Ambassador Eisenstadt. Thanks, uh, Professor Stein. Thanks, Dr. Shanzer, my colleague. And thanks to all of you listening to this conversation here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.